The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Okay, Psalm 51, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, one of the most moving psalms in the entire Psalter. It is an amazing psalm. It's got all kinds of deep theology in it, but just the words itself, if you think about what he had done. David went into a married woman. He's the king of Israel. He's got all kinds of wives and concubines. He didn't need to do this, but he went after uh, one of his general's wives. He took her, and then he had the general killed, right? Terrible stuff, but he was confronted by the prophet, and here are his words. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now imagine that. He slept with the man's wife. He had the man killed. And he says, against you only have I sinned. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold. And people say, oh, original sin isn't a true uh, doctrine. It's not said explicitly in the Bible. The word Trinity isn't in the Bible, but it is implicitly taught. Well, guess what? Original sin as well. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part. You will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. He's going back to the Levitical system of taking hyssop and putting it in the blood and sprinkling, cleansing with the blood of the lamb. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. <coughs> then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You did not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with the burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. We are now in Esther chapter 6. I hope you guys have been enjoying this uh, book of Esther so far. It is just, every time I get into it now, I'm more excited and more excited. And I keep adding to and modifying the final sermon, which you'll hear in a few more weeks. But uh, it's an astonishing book. 
And what it's teaching us is just absolutely wonderful. This is Esther 6, 1 through 14. It's the man whom the king delights to honor. That night the king could not sleep, so one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. Then it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigdana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Then the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed upon Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. The king's servants said to him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king asked him, What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor? Let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry! Take the robe and the horse as you have suggested and do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. When Haman told his wife Suresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him as wise men, and his wife Suresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. By the end of the verses today, Mordecai is probably the most confused man on the planet. He and his people have been set for destruction, and yet his mortal enemy has come to him with a royal robe and the king's horse, and after placing the robe on him and placing him on the king's horse, he has conducted him through the city square, honoring him as a town crier would. Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. As soon as that was over, the robe was removed, the horse was led back to the royal stalls, and he went back to sit at the king's gate as if nothing ever happened. His people are still set for destruction, and yet the king honored him. It's hard to see how the king delighted to honor him while reveling in destroying him. And many of us often feel the same way or the opposite way about the Lord, depending on our circumstances. We hear about the end which is anticipated, but we have frustrating events which inhibit our ability to be happy in the meantime. Why, if God wants us to have a good end, do we have such difficulties on the way there? Maybe we're just looking at things the wrong way. Yes, pain is real. Trials are real. Loss or conflict really affects us. But is that what we should be focusing on? Our text verse comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's verses 17 and 18. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, 
while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, the day before I started typing this sermon was a Sunday. Sundays are long, tiring, busy days. They are from the moment that I get up until right before bed, filled with activity, some of which is exceedingly stressful, especially the video work for the updates and sermons. It is complicated, tedious work which requires complete attention and no distractions. However, 15 April was not such a day. It was very, very windy and raining. This meant that the dogs were not happy about going outside to do what dogs must do. It was rather hectic. No hectic, please. I am working on videos. While still working on the video for the update, Hidako came to me and said, the hot water heater is leaking. She said it with no urgency at all. My thought, it's dripping at a fitting. I'll tighten it when I get a chance later, maybe tomorrow. After about an hour or two, while I was now working on the sermon video, she came and said, the hot water heater's really leaking now. Well, that can't be a fitting unless it's been unscrewing itself. Up and out to the garage, yes, it was leaking. The garage was flooded, and the sermon was not getting edited. First, to turn off the water, which wasn't possible because there was no shutoff valve. What idiot put in a hot water heater without a shutoff valve? Don't answer that, Charlie. <laughs> Things took a while to get cleaned up, and the water was shut off at the meter. By now, I was questioning. But when I dumped out my old box of PVC parts, I realized that I could seal everything off with no problem at all. I had exactly what I needed. I had a couple parts that I could actually form into one part that I needed to get this job done. Questioning turned into praise. Thank you, Lord. I don't need to go to the store. The sermon work will get done. Dinner will be eating and bed will be waiting. I could wait until Wednesday or even Friday to put in a new hot water heater with a shutoff valve this time. And because Dad had left a few days earlier on vacation, Hidako could still take a hot shower over at his house. All worked out well. Despite the troubles, if we look for the good, it is enough to set our minds on a different, happier path. And more, if we can look as to why the troubles came about and fit them into the bigger picture, then we can really place it all in the Lord's hands without care or concern. This is the kind of thing that we can learn from the book of Esther. Mordecai had temporary difficulties, which did seem overwhelming, but when things turned around, he was able to look back on the troubles and fit them into a much larger picture of redemption and safety for his people. Though the book never gives the Lord credit for these things, meaning Mordecai's acknowledgement of him, we can hope that he saw things in that light. Even if he didn't, we certainly can, and we should. Each step of the story leads us to that much fuller of an understanding of the Lord's tender care for Israel and for us. This is a truth which is to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is a sleepless night. It's verses one through six. Verse one, that night the king could not sleep. The Hebrew words here are more descriptive. It says, in night the that fled sleep from the king. It is purposefully showing us that the same specific night that Esther had brought him for the banquet and then petitioned for a second banquet the next day is when the king's sleep fled away. 
What is important to understand is that the king's mind is consumed with Esther's petition. It is the only thing in the narrative that is recorded which could bring him to this state. It shows that he really is concerned about what she desires to reveal. The fact that she was willing to risk her life in coming to him unannounced demonstrated that it was a matter of the highest urgency and importance. It is this which caused his sleep to fly away. There are nights when we can't sleep, and then there are nights when sleep flies away from us. The mind races, and the thoughts which consume the minutes away then lead to hours of turning. The chances of the mind slowing down are exactly zero, and so there's nothing to do but either have the mind race while laying there or find something to do to whittle away the remaining hours. Verse 1 continues, So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles. The English here is fine, whereas the Hebrew is a little bit more lengthy. It says, And spoke to bring book, the memorials, words, the days. The king knows that he will be unable to sleep, and so he decided to get a little work done. It is evident that he was a little behind on it, too, because when he asked for the book, it is thumbed back to an earlier point. He isn't simply being read the events of the day, but is catching up maybe on events since his last sleepless night. That's speculation, of course, but this is what one would do. Like reading a book, we will go to where the bookmark is and start reading once again. The result of this reading tends to show that this is probably the case. He would listen until the sound of the words overwhelmed him, and he fell back to sleep. From there, the bookmark would be replaced, awaiting his next sleepless night. First one continues, and they were read before the king. Some ancient commentators report that some of the kings of this time were illiterate. Now, that may be true, but being king means that he had no need to read on his own. He could have someone do it for him. If compiled in a narrative or poetic form, such as been seen in many of these ancient records, the reading would be interesting and it would calm his already racing mind. Depending on the reader, it could also bring him to a state of drowsiness. Verse 2, And it was found written that Mordecai had told Bigdana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. The events referred to now are recorded in Esther 2, verse 23, which is summed up with the words, And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. The only difference here is that the name Bigdan of verse 223 is changed to Bigdana here. The timing of the events now occurring clearly shows the presence of the Lord. The king's sleep fled away, the books of the Chronicles was brought to him, and yet this reading contains the events concerning Mordecai, and Haman is expected to ask for Mordecai to be hanged on the very next day. And more, Esther has a second banquet scheduled for the king and Haman in order to reveal what she did not reveal in the first meeting. On and on, the little details evolve into one grand theme. The Lord is there, and he is directing the events for a determined outcome. This verse finishes a set of twos. Here the words of the deeds of Bigthan and Teresh, the doorkeepers of Ahasuerus, are reported by Mordecai. The same words, Mordecai, Bigthan, Teresh, doorkeepers, and Ahasuerus, are all repeated in verse 221. The two accounts differ, as one was recorded as it occurred, and one has been recorded concerning what occurred, but they confirm that what has occurred is crucial to the unfolding events in the lives of all concerned. Verse 3, Then the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed upon Mordecai for this? The king has certainly not forgotten the deed of Mordecai. However, it was a reward for the deed that concerns him at this point. 
It is noted by Herodotus that in Persia there was a special list which was compiled and maintained of those who had done some special service for the king. It was considered a duty to acknowledge them for such things, and it would practically be a legal right for someone noteworthy to be so conferred. The lack of any reward may have been that it was forgotten due to the development of other busy duties in the king's life, or it could be that the court simply didn't pursue reminding the king because Mordecai was a Jew. Whatever the reason, their response came back to the ears of the king. Verse 3 going on, and the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. They would be the ones to know. As recorders of the Chronicles, they would be responsible for knowing where such an act was recorded and the exact details of what was done. Their response shows that the matter of recompense had not yet been completed. What is evident is that the king either decided to have the books read after much of a long, sleepless night, or he had them read to him for many hours through the night, probably the latter. Several scholars note that the Hebrew of verse 1 denotes that a lengthy period of reading is implied. Either way, morning arrived while the books were still being read, verse 4. So the king said, who is in the court? From the question, one can assume that there would always be attendance in the court, or at least this would be the case for any time that the king was awake. As the king wanted something read to him, then the scribe would have been awoken to read to him. As the two were in the palace awake, Others would stand ready to meet whatever request that may be made. If he wanted a Coke, they'd have to go out and get him the Coke. It's obvious from the previous verse that the king is looking to rectify the oversight of honoring Mordecai. It is on his mind. It is a new day. And whatever advisor or attendant was in the court could be inquired of or directed to attend to the matter. The circumstances which follow are more than ironic, but almost comical in how they play out. Man has a sense of humor, and man possesses nothing which God does not possess or understand. And so what follows, along with the exacting timing of all of these events, shows us that the Lord directed them for the sake of irony as much as anything else. Verse 4 continues, Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace. One can sense the urgency of Haman's arrival at the palace. It is still early in the morning, and yet he has excitedly gone to the palace with all alacrity to have his plan executed at the earliest possible moment. He probably didn't sleep any more than the king did, tossing and turning at the delightful thought of fulfilling his plan of the previous evening, which was, verse 4 continues, to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. An unused gallows is a pointless gallows. The thing had been prepared, and Mordecai was not hanging on it. All Haman needed was the king's approval, and that would be quickly rectified. One can almost sense the eager anticipation which flowed through Haman's pulsing veins. Verse 5, the king's servant said to him, Haman is there standing in the court. The new King James Version unfortunately omits translating the word hine, or behold. It more literally says, behold, Haman stands in the court. Even though there were certainly other officers present, it seems that this was an unexpected surprise that Haman would be there at this time. Being the one who was granted the king's signet ring back in chapter 3, it seems that the timing of his coming was quite propitious. He would certainly be well suited to attending to such an important duty of kingly matters. The irony increases. Verse 5 continues, and the king said, let him come in. Both men are, at this time, intimately interested in this single Jew. 
One desires to have him honored in order to fulfill a royal responsibility for having saved the king's life. One desired to have him executed to fulfill a personal vendetta which had become a kingly responsibility because of the edict concerning all of the Jews. The irony is so heavy that it lays upon the royal court like a blanket of morning dew. Verse 6, so Haman came in and the king asked him, though Haman is there to make his petition, he must defer to the king first, responding to any need or question. Only after this could he then make his request. Had he come at any other time and sought the king's attention, he would have been the one to speak his desires first. King Ahasuerus, Haman is seeking your presence. We'll send him in. Hey, Haman, what's on your mind? The timing here is literally brought to the difference between one sentence, either initiated by the king or initiated by Haman. The entire story pivots on the king's question in one verse. Verse 6 continues, What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor. It is Mordecai who is on the king's mind. If the king had said, why are you up so early? What can I do for you there, old boy? The entire course of events may have taken a different turn, but the matter of Mordecai is preeminent on his mind, and therefore all pleasantries are dispensed with. The king feels a debt has been unfortunately left unpaid, and it must be dealt with first. The question is asked in a manner which seeks impartiality, no name is given. No circumstances are detailed. It could therefore be something small to something exceedingly great. However, it is really early in the morning. The royal chronicles are laid out with someone reading them, and the king is asking a question, probably based on them. Haman, not knowing this, considers the question, possibly in light of his having saved the empire by recommending the removal of the Jews. Of course, that must be it. What honor has been bestowed upon this one? What has been granted for his noble deed? Surely something must have been done, but if not, we must correct that and do so with speed. How can he be repaid for the thing he has done? What he did was a noble thing indeed. We need to faithfully reward this one. What would bless him? What does he need? What shall be done for the man who has helped the king? Tell me if you can suggest anything that will do. What will to him happiness bring? This is what I am asking of you. Our second thought today is the dog and his bone. It's verses 6 through 9. Verse 6 continues. Now Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Well, of course. He's called into the king's presence without having first requested an audience. He was the brilliant architect behind the removal of the Jews. He was the only one invited to Esther's banquet yesterday, and he was the only one who was invited for the second banquet later on this same day. His skill of leadership, obviously noted even by the queen, meant that the king's high approval of him is what is on the king's mind. With this obviously his thoughts, he suggests something truly fitting for himself, the great and awesome Haman. Verse 7, and Haman answered the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, if anyone else was on Haman's mind as being a possibility to honor, he would have skipped this sentence entirely. However, he is only thinking of himself as the candidate for the honor to be presented. And so by repeating the words of the king, he is adding honor on top of honor. However, it simply says, the man whom the king delights to honor. The word for is inserted for supposed clarity, but it is unnecessary. The broken nature of the sentence shows the excitement of Haman's response. Question, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Answer, 
the man whom the king delights to honor? Well, let me tell you. Verse 8, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn. It is noted that wearing a kingly robe would be a breach of a Persian law, but the king might allow it at his command. As it is a robe the king had worn, it is signifying a special robe, not necessarily the regular garments which he would wear from day to day. Here, Haman is looking for the highest form of recognition, showing the king's absolute favor of the individual by granting one of his own special robes to be placed upon the favored subject. This is similar to the bestowal of the garments by Pharaoh upon Joseph in Genesis chapter 41 and the granting of Jonathan's garment to David in 1 Samuel 18. It is also foreshadowing the laying of kingly attire upon Christ as is seen in the gospel accounts. Verse 8 continues, and a horse on which the king is ridden. A royal horse carries much the same symbolism of wearing a royal robe. It would be evident to all that the one being carried was truly highly honored. In Genesis 41, Joseph was made to ride in Pharaoh's second chariot. And when Solomon was to be ordained as king in David's place, David directed that he be taken on his own mule down to Gihon for the ceremony. This honor would be made all the more distinct by another symbol of kingly authority. Verse 8 continues, which has a royal crest placed on its head. It is argued whether this is a royal crown for the rider's head, a royal crown from the king's head, or a royal crown for the horse's head. The Hebrew, however, is specific. It is for the horse. Ancient Assyrian monuments depict the king's horse wearing a sort of crown, a special crown or crest, is something that would identify it as the king's own horse. The honor would be great. This verse contains the very last use of the word keter or crown in the Bible. It was first seen in verse 111, and we can now bid it adieu. Verse 9, then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes. Not only does Haman suggest that the royal robe and horse be furnished, but that it be first delivered to one of the king's princes. It is the same word used to describe the nobles of the kingdom in verse 1-3, ha-partamim, or the nobles. It is a Persian word brought into the Hebrew, which literally means first. In other words, Haman is thinking that the king is speaking of honoring him. He's looking to have some other noble to act as his own footman. It is ironic that the noble prince selected for the task would, in fact, be him. This would include not only bringing the stated items, but actually placing them on the individual. Verse 9 continues, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. The verb is actually third person plural, that they may array the man. This is speaking of all involved in getting the things to him and ensuring he is attired in them. Haman is thinking of a fashion party, with himself being attended to by the king's own servants and even his own noblemen. He would be the cat's meow. He would be the bee's knees and the dot on the eye as others tended to him. As Adam Clark says about these words, Alas, poor Haman, never was the fable of the dog in the shadow more literally fulfilled. If you don't know that fable, go read it. It's pretty funny. Verse 9 continues, Then prayed him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Being arrayed in royal splendor would do no good if nobody saw it, and it would only be partial joy if only those in the royal palace saw it, but it would be high honor indeed if all were to see it. The man so honored would be forever adored by the people of Shushan if he were so honored in public. 
Haman's greatest dreams were about to come true. He would be the hero of the common people among whom he passed. They would willingly bow to him and offer him praise and honor. These same types of honor actually were granted to Joseph in Genesis 41, verse 43, where it says, And he had him ride in the second chariot, which he had, and they cried out before him, Bow the knee. So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Honors from the king for the man. This is what our king chose to do. For the one who reported the treacherous plan, the king is pleased with this man through and through. Rewards are waiting for those who also assist the king. His favor shall also be poured out on you. Honor and blessings upon yourself you shall bring. Yes, when you please the king, honors will ensue. Be pleased to know that your deeds will be seen. Nothing will be forgotten for those who please the king. From start to finish and all in between, your faithfulness will to you favor and honor bring. Our third thought today is the fall of the fallen. It's verses 10 through 14. Verse 10, then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested. You can feel his heart beating at those words. The urgency of the command shows that the king felt as if a royal pardon for delaying such an honor would be next necessary. He had overlooked the saving of his own life by another, and he had wanted that oversight rectified immediately. The advice given was appropriate to the situation. There was a noble ready and available to carry it out, and the implements were right there in the palace. In a short span of time, the debt to the throne would be repaid with honor to the subject who deserved his wages for his attentive care. The words here tend to confirm that the crest or crown was for the horse, not for the rider. It was to accompany the horse. If it were otherwise, it would have been included in the list for the rider. Instead, it simply is a part of the words, as you have suggested, meaning that the horse would be so ornamented and also conducted by a footman. Verse 10 continues, And do so for Mordecai the Jew, who sits within the king's gate. I got to tell you, the New King James Version has an exclamation point at the end of that verse. It's a very nice touch. (laughs) To ensure exactly who is being granted the honor, he signifies the name, the race, and the position held. All of this would have been recorded for him in the Chronicles, and he is simply repeating what was just relayed to him then. Some call into question the historical truth of the account because of these words. They ask, how is it possible that the king would have forgotten that he had consigned all of the Jews to death and so honor a Jew in this way? However, Haman's words in chapter 3 never said anything about the Jews. All he said to the king was, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all of the provinces of your kingdom. With a little more talk about them, he offered to have them eliminated and to place the money in the king's treasuries to do so. The subject of who these people were was never mentioned. For all the king knew, Haman was speaking of gypsies, tramps, and thieves. It was Haman who harbored the ill will, and the recompense for his wickedness towards the Jews was now coming back upon him. Verse 10 continues, Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. The great honors which Haman had longed to be heaped upon him would now be lavished upon his mortal enemy by him. The hatred between the Amalekites and the Jews was ancient. Within only moments, his first battle in the war, which would lead to victory over them, was about to commence. But instead, he was now within moments of the most humiliating defeat of all. Verse 11, So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, and led him on horseback through the city square, and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Haman had arrogantly assumed that he would be the recipient of the honors. 
by asking for a noble to attend to the task, he had unknowingly appointed himself to accomplish it. He could no more ask to be left off from attending to it as any other noble could for Haman. The decision was made, and the duty was to be carried out without complaint or comment. It would be hard to fully imagine the mental state of either man as these events unfolded, but it would have been a highly sorrowful day for Haman, and a day of joy, even if temporary, while still facing extermination for Mordecai. It is possible that he may have now felt the first twinge of hope for his people since the issuing of the edict against them. This verse introduces another set of twos. Mordecai is invested with special clothes and accompanying honors appropriate to his good deed toward the king. In 815, he will again be noted in royal apparel of blue and white with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. They contrast in that here he is temporarily honored for a deed accomplished in the saving of the king. There, it will be for a permanent appointment as a royal in the king's palace. They do contrast, and yet they confirm the honorable deeds and skill of Mordecai. Verse 12, afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate. Since chapter 2, it has been seen that Mordecai sat in the king's gate. Thus, he is either a eunuch or he filled some other employ within the king's realm. The gate is from where he came when Haman came to collect him, and the gate is to where he returns upon the granting of his high honor. With that behind him, he now returns to his regular place of employ, seemingly not puffed up at all about what has occurred. Instead, he quietly resumes his routine life, waiting to see if Esther will prevail in her own mission. On the other hand, verse 12, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. While Mordecai took his honors in stride, Haman has not fared so well. There is a sense of urgency in returning to his house, as if he needed to shut himself in from the outside world. And on the way there, he both mourned, a sign of deep distress, and he covered his head, a sign of exceeding shame. When David was overthrown by his son Absalom, it says in 2 Samuel 15, verse 30, that as he fled, he ascended the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, and he had his head covered and went barefoot. Likewise, it says this in the 44th Psalm, my dishonor is continually before me, and the shame of my face has covered me. Likewise, in Psalm 69, verse 7, it says, Because for your sake I have borne reproach, shame has covered my face. Jeremiah also speaks of the shame of drought, a sign of the Lord's displeasure, and it includes the covering of the head. Here's what it says in Jeremiah 14. Because the ground is parched, for there was no rain in the land, the plowmen were ashamed. They covered their heads. This verse now introduces another set of twos. Here Haman's face is covered by himself at the beginning of his downfall as he flees to his house in shame, hoping for comfort. In verse 7-8, his face will be covered by others as he is led off to the gallows at his own house in disgrace. They contrast in detail, but they confirm the full and final downfall of wicked Haman. Verse 13, when Haman told his wife Suresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, Haman was not one to keep his emotions to himself. If he were alive today, his Facebook post would include all of the sad details of the day. Instead, he told his wife and all of his friends what had occurred, probably hoping for them to say, don't worry about a thing. Every little thing is going to be all right. But that is not the response he receives. Here, it uses the same word as it did in verse 511, translated as told. 
It means to recount. Before he recounted all of the great things which had occurred to him. Now he recounts all of the miserable things which have come about. What a difference a day makes. He is now hoping for consolation. Instead, verse 13 continues, his wise men and his wife Suresh said to him, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him. Scholars have pondered over the words here as if they're hard to explain. How could they know this? From there, commentaries go into detail about how it was understood that the Jews were under divine protection and that it was obvious that Haman had sealed his fate because of this. But they already knew that he was a Jew when they recommended that he be hung. That is seen in verse 513. What has become obvious to them isn't that there has been some sort of divine protection over the Jews that they knew about all along, but that there is the king's favor resting on two of them. It is Haman who signed the decree and sealed it with the king's signet. It is he who bore ill will to an entire group of people because of his heritage and his hatred. But his hatred was directed at exterminating a group of people who had found the king's favor, first through Esther the queen and now through Mordecai who sat in the king's gate. Now, from this logical chain of events, they could then see that a divine force was at work. It was not before, but only after the event that this was now evident. This is why they are termed wise men. They are able to discern the situation based on the observable facts which have led to where the things are now. Because of this, they tell Haman that he will not succeed in his plan. Verse 13 continues, but will surely fall before him. Qui n'a le panav. For falling, you will fall before him. The idea of these words is that because of your fall, your total fall is assured. What is begun will continue until it is completely finished. They are as certain of this as they are that honey is sweet. This verse finishes a set of twos. Starting in verse 510, he began to consult his friends. The two contrast one another. There he consulted to brag and to seek counsel. His friends gave him counsel on how to destroy Mordecai. In this, he called them for mourning, and they have revealed that it is Mordecai who will destroy him. The two accounts do contrast, and yet they confirm that the enmity between the two will end in destruction. In Haman, we can see the truth of the proverb. Proverbs 26, 27 says, whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone will have it roll back on him. Haman had metaphorically dug a pit for Mordecai, and he will fall into that pit. And he had attempted to roll away Israel, but they will roll right back on him. Verse 14 finishes us up today with these words. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. There is a rapid succession of events which has come about in this chapter, culminating in this final verse. Whereas just one chapter before he was bragging about being the only one invited to Esther's banquet... Now he's fearful of having made the wrong decision concerning the Jews. He needs time to think through what to do, but time is not his friend. Instead, the royal court has come to gather Haman for the second banquet of Esther. What was a point of bragging and hope for joy would now be a tasteless time of trial and trepidation. One can almost anticipate the outcome, if not the events themselves, of what lies ahead at Esther's banquet. Again, as we have seen on numerous occasions already, the divine hand of the unseen Lord is directing these events for us to see and to contemplate. 
if the account is true, and we can be assured that it is, will we look at what has happened as random chance and dumb luck, or will we look at the events as marvelous markers of the Lord's guiding hand leading Israel to a good end? The reason this is important to contemplate in a story like Esther is because the story is mirrored throughout history in the Jewish people. Is everything that has happened to them simply one long string of chances happening to turn out as was prophesied by Moses at Mount Sinai as given by the Lord? Or is it more than chance? As humans, we are saved by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The record of his life is sufficient to bring anyone to salvation if they will simply respond to the call. But God hasn't just left that witness and said, take it or leave it. He has confirmed the word which points to Christ, not only in Christ, but in the people from whom Christ comes and to whom he has promised to return. Israel is more than a cosmic aberration. They are a divine marker of God's faithfulness to his word. He chose them to lead to the incarnate word, Jesus, and he has promised to keep them until the end, despite their rejection of that same divine word. The story of Esther is a story of the unseen Lord's faithfulness, and it is a part of the greater longer, and more intricate story which has been going on for thousands of years. When your faith in the world around you is shaken, and if your own faith in the promises of the Lord are likewise shaken, take time to reflect on the unbelievable faithfulness of the Lord to his unfaithful people, Israel. They have been surrounded by so many enemies and such great enemies so often that all reason should tell us that they should be a long, distant memory but they're not. And so in his faithfulness to Israel, we can be encouraged of his faithfulness to us. Have faith in Christ. Do not swerve in your love of his word as it applies to you and be responsible to follow it, applying it to your own life constantly. In this, your walk will be sound and your days will be well spent. This is what I would ask of you today. I was distressed when I had news that the garage was flooded and I needed to go out and do something. But like I said, the Lord provided months and maybe even years ago the PVC parts I needed to get through that. And I could see he wanted that video done that day, right? Well, there are a lot greater tragedies in our life than a hot water heater. There are tragedies of the loss of a child. There are tragedies of the loss of a husband or another family member. And we think, how does this fit into the picture? I don't understand how this fits into the picture. And we question the Lord. But the Lord is there, and he is tending to our needs. And in the end, we're going to look back, and we're going to see, I see exactly how this works out. I see it exactly. So don't fret it in the meantime. That says, I'm going to take you back to our text verse, and I'm going to read it to you so you can remember that. For our light affliction, I don't care how heavy your affliction is, it is a light affliction, which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The plan will come out as it should, and you will be perfectly pleased when it does. But that's only if you're a part of the plan that God has revealed in his son, Jesus Christ. If you haven't called on Jesus Christ, I got bad news for you. You are not saved, and you are going to a completely different place than the redeemed of the Lord. So you might as well get that fixed today. Jesus is not, you know, I I post something on Facebook and you get all these sappy people out there that say, well, you need to be a better Christian. You need need to not say this and that and one thing and another. You know, they've never read their Bible. Jesus is the most exclusive person on this planet. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one 
comes to the Father but through me. That is the most exclusive statement that any person has ever made in the history of this world. You will not get to see God unless you go through the blood of Jesus Christ. The wages of sin is death, and all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God. So, we're all going to die. Two, two deaths in the Bible. You've got the death, which is physical in nature, and you've got the spiritual disconnection from God. And if you don't get that one fixed before your physical death comes, you will be separated from God forever. But God says, but the gift of eternal life, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He died so that we can be reconnected to our Heavenly Father, and he proved it by coming out of the grave. The wages of sin is death. Well, if he had no sin of his own, then he could not stay in that grave. So he died for our sins. He came out of the grave to justify us. Call on the name of Jesus. Be reconciled to God the Father through his shed blood. And a great, great future lies ahead for you. Our closing verse comes from Proverbs chapter 14, is verse 35. The king's favor is towards a wise servant, but his wrath is against him who causes shame. Sounds like Haman. Sounds like all of us in the presence of God, right? Next week, Esther 7, 1 through 10. It's a cursed way to die. It's entitled, Hang Him High. That'll be our ninth Esther sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. At times, you might feel as if he has no great design for you in life. But he has brought you to this moment to reveal his glory in and through you. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Short poem, and we'll take the Lord's Supper. This is entitled, The Man Whom the King Delights to Honor. Because we got some people who have never been in a church before. If you have the New King James Version and you follow the poem, it's almost identical. I just add in some rhyming words. That night the king could not sleep, so one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. Then it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, as he ought, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had to lay hands on King Ahasuerus sought. Then the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed for this on Mordecai? And the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. This was their reply. So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Such was his malice. The king's servant said to him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. To me, have that guy Haman report. So Haman came in and the king asked him, What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Tell me plainly. Now Haman thought in his heart, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Then Haman answered the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, yes, he said, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed upon its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the most noble princes of the king, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Yes, you should commit to do this thing. Then parade him on horseback through the city square, and proclaim before him, you see, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So should it be. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse, as you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken, as I have now attested. So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, and led him on horseback through the city square, and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor with fanfare. 
Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered and feeling like a louse. When Haman told his wife Suresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife Suresh said to him words that were quite grim. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you shall not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. A bad end you cannot prevent. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuch came while he sat there scared and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. Lord God, thank you for your presence that is with us, even when we don't realize that you are there. Because you sent your own son, Jesus, we can know that you truly do care. And so, Lord, be real to us in a wonderful new way. Open our minds and our hearts to seeing you always, through every step we take and throughout every day. Be real to us, O oh God, and to you we shall give all of our praise. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this ongoing story of faithfulness. Not ours. Not ours by any stretch of the imagination, but, by, but of your faithfulness and by your great grace and mercy, which you have loved us. You've taken care of Israel despite their rejection of you, and that is our sure hope that we can look at these words and we can say our hope is grounded. He's been faithful to them. He will be faithful to the promise he's made to us. We believed. We were given the gift of the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, and that guarantee is assured. We have no worry if we're going to lose our salvation because of something that we have done. We stand fast in that salvation, not because of us, because of you. We thank you for that. We praise you, we glorify you, and we honor you for the great thing that you have done through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so it's in his exalted and precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.